This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. America's political system has some tension built in. We get to speak loudly about how we think society should be run. Even though the gears of policy move slowly, they absolutely do move, and the country has the power to change more in a generation than some other societies do in a century. For better and worse, it's a hallmark of who we are and how we chart our course into the future together. So what happens in a system like that when the fabric of reality tears, when one group is so mad about losing an election, it decides to take control of the ballot box and burn it, to take power by force? Molly follows U.S. politics and politicians very closely, how they think and behave and why. We talked to her about all of this, about some of the dark forces and shadows surrounding certain elements of U.S. politics, about what individuals and voters can do, and about why it matters. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode coming this Wednesday, featuring Anna Kasparian, who's co-host of The Young Turks. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Going from the Daily Beast to the Atlantic was, it seems like a big switch to me, although I'm not a writer. How did this come about and what's been the most interesting and maybe difficult parts of the transition? So actually, I feel like this is a good story on like useful things to do for your career. So I had been at the Daily Beast and I had been writing for the Atlantic and I loved the Atlantic because it's so good and the writing is so good. I mean, I love the Daily Beast too and I'm a big fan, but the Daily Beast is very voicey in a way that is really fun to write for, but can also get very heavy, you know, um, and the voiciness sometimes kind of overpowers the work a little bit, like, because things are all in that kind of jovial, left-leaning voice. I came from the world of novels, so I'm much more interested in, like, the texture of writing than I think a lot of people in the nonfiction realm are. I was very big on writing for The Atlantic, and one day they came to me and said, we're doing this newsletter project, and then you could write for us, and and that's a way in. And so, um, and I was really um, very excited to do it because there's a lot of really, really smart writing there. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Adam Sewer. And I mean, there are just all of these really, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I mean, just like a very venerable tradition there. So I was, you know, absolutely jumped at the chance. Could you help me understand what is a newsletter structurally from a writing perspective? It's become massively popular with Substack and everybody having newsletters, but also having a lot of followers that are willing to pay for this. So from a structural writing standpoint, what defines a newsletter? And if you are writing a newsletter, what makes it good? There's a lot of power in writing those newsletters because you can link to stuff or not link to stuff. You can make a story bigger than it might otherwise be. So the thing that I write is more just I write a piece every week and I put it on my newsletter. And so I do that and then I write for the Atlantic site and then I write for Vogue. So it's not the same kind of newsletter. And, you know, I'm always trying like different ways of getting my content because I try to read all the stuff. 
I read Punchbowl news mainly for my I politics. I have Punchbowl okay. too. Yeah, they're pretty good. And aren't I have. They? I mean, I have moments when I want to. Uh, yes, they are very in the weeds and <laughs> they're very good. I hear a and butt they coming. cover Congress very well, and I like Jake and Anna a lot. They're a little bit conservative, and you can just tell that they're more plugged in with the conservative staffers. I would also say that, and I think this is one of Democrats' biggest problems, and I I mean, among many, I don't think that Democratic members of the elected class play ball the way Republicans do. And so that affects their coverage. So can you get into that? Play ball. What does that mean for everybody? Really good example. So a really good example is what has happened with the Trump White House versus what happened with the Biden White House, right? There are a couple of things that Republicans have been really smart on that Democrats don't do. And I think they don't do it because they feel ultimately that some of this stuff is sleazy. And I don't think it is. And one of the things I would say, like, if in my mind, I would love to see Joe Biden do his own Twitter. He doesn't have to be crazy, but one of the things that people liked about Trump, and again, I did not like Trump. I do not like Trump. I think he's the greatest danger to democracy of the last 50 years. I don't want him anywhere near the office of the presidency. I want to put all those disclaimers down because, and I don't think he's even a particularly gifted politician, but I do think people liked that he would do his own Twitter and that they could get close to the president that way. And even if they weren't really getting close to the president, they felt that they were interacting with him. I think that Biden would get a lot of play if he just did his, and he doesn't have to do a million tweets and we don't want crazy tweets. But I think, you know, a picture of the cat, you know, a little thing about how he's getting on the plane, you know, maybe something about, his ethanol speech, stuff that humanizes him because he feels very far away. And I think that one of the things Trump did, I mean, he's a pathological liar, but he felt more accessible. The unemployment rate is below 4%, a pandemic low as more Americans find jobs. President Biden came into office vowing to get the pandemic under control. We now have a national strategy to beat COVID-19. It's comprehensive. It's based on science, not politics. Nearly 63% of eligible Americans are now fully vaccinated. We're very different today than we were a year ago, even though we still have problems. In his first year in office, President Biden did deliver on several key campaign promises. He signed into law the American Rescue Plan, a nearly $2 trillion COVID stimulus bill. After months of negotiations, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill became law. I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that it took a monumental step forward as a nation. The president traveled twice overseas, pledging at every stop that under his leadership, America is back. He quickly moved to put the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Agreement and the World Health Organization. He withdrew American troops from Afghanistan before the 20th anniversary of September 11th. But in that process, a terror attack at the Kabul airport killed 13 American service members. I have the same criticism of the Biden administration as you do. I think from a policy standpoint, they're doing a lot of great things. We can, a lot of great stuff, but nobody knows. Nobody I mean, that's knows. And even like, it's funny because I was interviewing Bill Browder for the podcast 
today. And this guy, right, he's the guy who created the Magnitsky Act. Yep. He's very hard on all these governments. He's very mad at this one. He's mad at that one. I said, what is the Biden administration doing that you'd like or dislike? And he said, I'm very happy with what they're doing. He said, I actually think they're doing exactly the right thing. And this is a very difficult situation, right? Because they're walking between, you know, are you going to be guilty of letting a humanitarian disaster unfold in front of your very eyes? Or are you going to get America into World War III, right? I mean, this is cannot be a worse situation. And Bill Browder says he's doing a great job, but people don't know it because this administration is just not communicating with the American people. How much of this is the press team just being too cautious and maybe afraid that letting Biden be Biden uh, will hurt them and it's, it's actually sinking the presidency? They're way too cautious about too many things. And they're too cautious about what they put out there. They're too cautious about the way they put it out there. They're too cautious. I mean, Look, you have people in that administration like Vice President Harris. She is charming. Like, let her do her own tweets. Let her do her own Instagram. Let her go and talk to people. She has a huge constituency of women who love her. It's like they're so scared. So I think that they should let him do more. I think they should let her do more. I think, like, the political world has gotten a 100 times more vicious and more calculated. I think the Republican Party right now has really hardened against democracy and is, you know, really ultimately doing stuff that is undermining our Constitution. And I can't believe how bad it's gotten. And in fact, when Trump got to be president, I never thought the Republican Party would go along with the kind of stuff they've gone along with. But they're better at communicating with people. Do you think that Democrats have a problem managing expectations with reality? Because, Molly, as we were saying, the Biden administration ended the endless war in Afghanistan, passed a major, major and much overdue bipartisan infrastructure bill. He's been a masterful on Ukraine. And there's just so many more things that he's doing that are amazing. But yet you had some actors portraying to their voters, maybe to raise money, maybe to get the grassroots efforts out there. Things like Medicare for all were going to be on the agenda. Things like expanding the Supreme Court. You have these actors that know that these things are dead, but they're selling them to their base and they're selling them to the media as if it's possible for these things to actually get signed into law. Is maybe that a problem with Democratic messaging where you have people kind of being dishonest on the left with what is possible and what they are telling their voters can get accomplished so that when these big things do get accomplished, people just don't get that excited? I think... Some of the problem is that some of these people do think they can be accomplished. You know, if you look at the math, they can't be. I think sometimes Democrats think because they're on the right side of things that sooner or later everyone else will come along. And I don't think that's realistic. I don't understand why things weren't passed as cutouts. It seems like Nancy Pelosi was really set on getting these mega bills passed. And it struck me that there certainly was a way to past some of these cutouts, especially when it comes to voting rights. So taking that to the next step, you and I both agree that the Republican Party is, I don't, I don't know how to put this, proto-authoritarian, uh, authoritarian curious. I, I don't know the, the right term here, but they're willing to take democracy to the brink with the big lie and everything we've seen. The Democrats are not. So 
how much should we be pushing our Democratic politicians to go a step further and fight like the Republicans fight when it could eventually lead to the destruction of the thing that we're trying to protect? I think you have one party that is supporting democracy right now and one party that's not. So it's pretty important that that one party fights as hard as they can. And that would be my hot take. There needs to be a reckoning. Now, I would say there are a few things that I think are good signs. Okay, one is Utah. All right. Utah has a Republican governor who refused to do a trans ban, which I thought was a really good sign. You have Mitt Romney not endorsing Mike Lee. You have Evan McMullen running as an independent. You have like green shoots of democracy in Utah. Now, I don't know, again, Trump may come in there and smash the whole thing up, but like that is a state where you are seeing a little bit of sanity and it should be celebrated. Spencer Cox He's been great on a lot of different issues. You said he vetoed the anti-trans legislation. He also, during the Afghanistan withdrawal, was sending letters to President Biden saying, hey, hey, man, can you give us more refugees? We really want to help these people out. It's like, where is this in the GOP? It's just such a a breath of fresh air, uh, despite, you know, um, Reagan and Bush were debating in 1980 who could be more liberal on immigration. Immigration is such an important issue because it's so needed in our current economy, right? We have a very tight labor market. Um, And if democratic messaging were good, they would say, you know, you can't find anyone to work in your restaurant. That's because of what Tucker Carlson is saying at night on television. It's not like they're taking your jobs. There's no one to take those jobs. Republicans are not bound by reality. They can say whatever they want, right? They can say Democrats. I mean, you know, I went to all those different CPACs and they always said the same things, you know, from Trump to Junior to um, Mike Pompeo, they all say the same thing. You know, I mean, I was at a CPAC where um, a doctor, and I don't even think he's a doctor, but Sebastian Gorka said that Democrats want to take away your hamburgers. I mean, I just think that Democrats need to defend themselves. But I mean, there's a a not insignificant part of the Republican Party thinks that all Democrats are pedophiles. This is something that Republicans do because of Denny Hassett, who was the longest turn, turn, you know, I mean, they need to say like, you know, the longest serving GOP House speaker was in jail for pedophilia. Right. I mean, like. Not even like, a, you know, it really was. And, and so I think that there's some amount of projection and, uh, and so forth. There's a lot of bad faith in the Republican Party and a lot of bad faith attacks. And Democrats just need to focus on, you know, they have a good message. I mean, a great candidate. Like, think about John Fetterman. Yeah, he's crushing it right now in the polls. Right. He's crushing it. He's crushing it because he's himself, right? He's a great, he's a really good speaker. He's kind of cool. His wife is super interesting. They have these kids. Is he lefty? He's somewhat lefty. He's sort of lefty for his place, right? Like, you know, he's for marijuana legalization. He's pro-LGBTQ. I mean, he's, but is he like super lefty? No. I mean, I think... His message is for his place. 
I wish Biden would lean more into the union stuff because that I think is very winnable for him. The Amazon union, an enormous victory in Staten Island, completely worker created, like workers are being paid less. There is a real, there's a sort of come to Jesus moment about labor and how labor is treated and the collective bargaining power of unions. The thing I'm struck by with Democrats is they are on the right side of so many issues. And Republicans are like literally on the fascism side. They're on the tar and feather Democrats and say that they are pro-pedophilia side. I mean, this is not hard, people. Like, Democrats are on the side of collective bargaining power. Like, that's a good side to be on. It's almost like the Republicans are trying to turn into this working class messaging party, yet the Re- Democrats' policy is for the working class Yeah, much more. People, yeah. You've been holding up state reps. You've been holding up people like Amanda Littman. You've been getting out uh, their information. I'm sure that um, you're also supporting them in ways that we don't no, no, even but see. But Amanda Littman is doing something that is not what I do that is incredibly cool and great. She is basically setting up the organization for state and local level candidates. So she's setting up the logistical support. She's training candidates to run. It seems like the Republican donors have set up this infrastructure, the get out the vote, the campaigning, recruiting candidates 30 years ago that Democrats are just starting to do now. And we know that that's important because of the census, right, Molly? Yeah. Um, Redistricting for any number of reasons. Why? And you have big Republican donors sinking big money into this. Why don't more Democrats hold up state and local? Is it not sexy enough or is there something at play here that they're just not getting? I would say another little piece of good news here is that the school board, we just had these school board races, uh, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, a lot of school board races where the boards sort of came together to keep the QAnon crazies from winning. And that's huge, right? I mean, that's how it's all supposed to be. One of the things that I think was really problematic in the 2020 election, which I hope will not happen in the 2022 midterm and in the 2024, was that a lot of Democratic donors felt like they could just give to these big flashy organizations whose names I'm not going to mention, but who aren't necessarily candidates and that that would do it. And I think that ultimately, really, it's better to give to the candidates. What's something that somebody said on your podcast that has shocked you or maybe changed your worldview? What has shocked me? The most fun I've had has been, this is not shocking, but it has been really fun. I've really enjoyed getting to know candidates. Sometimes you get senators who are really boring. And I think congressmen are a little less careful, so they're a little more fun. I mean, there's one senator... So we're having a talk before, and I'm like, this guy's great. Why does everyone say he's boring? And then we start rolling tape, and it's like, so boring. You know, they're careful. They're worried, and they're careful. And so ultimately, I respect that. I mean, that's what the job is, is to be careful. And I'm certainly careful in my own way, but it makes for a less fun interview. I've really enjoyed some of these candidates. I mean, A great example was this guy, Hank, for Texas. He did not have a prayer. Texas's first district running against Louis Gohmert 
it's an R plus 19. They've like never seen a Democrat or it's an R plus 25. I mean, it's it's like it's like Florida's first district. It's like Matt Gates's district. It's very rad. But, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know these people like they've been very interesting. The kind of people who do this, you know, especially when you're running in one of these districts where you don't have a shot in hell, but you're showing people that there are Democrats, which ultimately Amanda Lippman says this very important stuff, which is that that really there should be not a single race where a Democrat doesn't run, because when a Republican runs unopposed, it ends up ultimately being quite bad for the Democratic Party in that area. And the Republican margin grows. I think that that's the biggest problem that I have with the Republican Party, Molly, is you had 147 vote to not certify an election after a coup on the Capitol. And these are sensible, like Frank Lucas, former chair of the Ag Committee, Finance Committee, very sensible. And I don't think he's like all of these isms and ists. I think that he's a good guy. But if you're a coward, what good does that do the people that you're supposed to be serving? It's much more fun to have. Um, a little bit of, you know, I try to give people a hard time. I've gotten better at that. You know, it's funny. You start on these podcasts and you think, you know, you just want people to like you. But then after a while, you're like, oh, fuck it. And so I have really started to give people a hard time. What's nice about a podcast, you guys, you know, you do a cable news hit is three minutes, four minutes, maybe the most it's 11 minutes. And that feels like an hour. But with a podcast, you can really get the person going and get them comfortable and then ask them something horrifying. What I saw today was the performance of QAnon, QAnon ideology, trying to tie this woman who has perfect integrity that Lindsey Graham has voted for twice to be on the federal bench, to try to tie her to child pornography because they know that's going to activate QAnon voters in November. They fully support Justice Kavanaugh. So we had a lot of Josh Hawley fulminating about protecting children from pornography, et cetera, and Tom Cotton going on about protecting women from rape, et cetera. They supported fully Justice Kavanaugh and were outraged that anyone would ask him about these three credible accusations of sexually violating teenagers and college students, okay? So we know they don't really care about that. They also fully support Donald Trump who has 26 accusers going all the way from having leered at teenage girls at beauty pageants he was in charge of to rape. So we know they don't care about any of that. We also know they don't care about the rule of law because they refuse to convict Donald Trump of fomenting an insurrection, which Josh Hawley raised his fist to support in real time. So we know they don't care about any of that rule of law, the law, none of it. What they care about is performing. Let's go to the audience for some questions. Let's go to Karen, and then we'll go to Andrea. Karen, over to you. Hey, yes, thank you so much, Molly. I just enjoy your Twitter feed so much. It really is something that (laughs) gives me sort of hope in desperate times. And additionally, I, I like that article that you wrote about that change is coming. I'm a black woman and I am obsessed with voting and I actually went to Harvard Law School as well. And it's been such a bittersweet process to see how Justice Brown Jackson has been treated. So with the added insult of Ginny Thomas in cahoots with Clarence Thomas, I wonder if Mm -hmm. you have any thoughts about the Supreme Court and also perhaps about how we can talk about voting rights. Thank you so much. 
I have been wanting to write about it, but I feel like I'm maybe not the right person to write about it. But it has been such a heartbreak to watch. I mean, this woman has been, she was congressionally confirmed. This was her fourth confirmation. She's been, you know, she was a circuit court judge. She was a this judge. She was a that judge. She had more training than almost any of them. And then these Republican senators tried to smear her. And because she had no scandals, they tried to smear her on sentencing. I mean, it was just so disgusting. I I know the rage that I felt. I can only imagine the rage I would have felt had I, you know, had an experience like her. I mean, she just, it just was shocking. And I would say also, the thing that I was so struck by was they still have a 6-3 court. I mean, the court, they managed to I mean, they installed a Supreme Court justice while people were voting. I mean, it's so preposterous. And even like during the time of her confirmation, they took the clean water provision and they took it on the shadow docket and they voted it down. I mean, this Supreme Court is so conservative and is so out of control that just to watch these Republican senators running interference for it was kind of shocking. I mean, look, Lindsey Graham obviously was trying. He had some kind of, he had wanted Michelle Childs and that he didn't get her. It was like hell to pay, right? I mean, his, his, the way he treated Jackson Brown was obviously because of his hostility and his rage that he didn't get Michelle Childs. It was like a child throwing a tantrum because they weren't given the toy they wanted. I mean, and then at the end he was like, Michelle Childs would have been better than you. I mean, it was just like, you're a U.S. senator and this is how you conduct yourself. But I actually thought what was worse was the Ted Cruz's and the Tom Cotton's talking about the sentencing, this pedophilia sentencing, which, by the way, was completely within the range. And I mean, the one thing I think is important is for us as sort of media watchers is that it showed that Republicans can make anything into a scandal. It was a thing that wasn't even a scandal and they made it into a scandal. So I think that is why Democrats really have to be so careful and so defensive. And so and there was a lot of really good writing. I think uh, Dana Linzer, Dana Lind wrote a piece for Slate. I'm messing up her name, but um, where she talked about how Democrats didn't get out soon enough to protect her. And that was right. Like, Dick Durbin should have been out there being like, this is not, you know, immediately like this is not about this judge. And this is a way of, you know, he should have called it for what it was early on and make them feel ashamed because they should have been ashamed. I mean, it was absolutely beyond the pale. And the idea that they were somehow this was payback for Kavanaugh, which they kept saying. And Kavanaugh had sexual assault allegations against him. Like, it's not the same. Like, to torture someone because... So I I was very upset by it. I thought it was very disgusting. But I think that's where the Republican Party is right now. So I was just horrified. And the other thing with the voting rights stuff is 100%. And that has to be, again, I mean, what Eric Holder has done a really good job, along with Mark Elias, of just... They have lawsuits in every state and every state that tries to do this, they have lawsuits and they've done a really good job. And I think it's pretty thankless. And look, I mean, should they codify voting rights in Congress? hundred percent. Do they have the votes for it without a filibuster reform? No. So like 
again, it's one of these things where, like, you're not going to be able to put it in reconciliation. You're not going to have filibuster reform. So the only way to do it would, I mean, if there was some way to do it, I mean, I would have just fired the parliamentarian and passed voting rights with a new parliamentarian. But I'm not elected. Senate Majority Leader John Fast. I see it in your future. It'll never happen. (laughs) We will go one last question. It's going to be Andrea, and then we will wrap up. Andrea, over to you. Thank you, Justin, and thank you, Molly. So many questions to ask. I guess I would ask if you could speak to, give us your thoughts and your take on the fastest growing independent party and also the youth vote, which is kind of poised to be a big vote by 2024. Who do you think is going to win these folks over? Again, the youth vote, thank God for the youth vote, right? But again, Democrats shouldn't take it for granted. I mean, like, just like with the male Hispanic voters, they should not take anything for granted, right? Like, Republicans really are obsessed with trying to get the youth vote. And if they weren't obsessed with it, you would not see Ben Shapiro everywhere, right? Ben Shapiro spends millions of dollars on Facebook advertising. Obviously, someone is propping these kind of, you know, Turning Point USA crew up financially with the hopes of getting these young voters. So I would say, look, legalizing marijuana is really a winning issue for Democrats. I mean, I'm sober 24 years. I have no horse in this race, but I do think that is a pretty easy win. And I'm not sure why that doesn't, why that, I mean, I live in a city where it's decriminalized, but not legal. Like, it just seems like a very silly thing not to run on, right? It's popular. I think that Listen, in my mind, I would much rather have a coalition government like they have in Europe. Our elections are so high stakes because the way things can swing so wildly between a Democrat and a Republican. So I don't think there's any world in which that changes. But you're going to have a situation which I don't think the Supreme Court realizes yet, but they have definitely set the ball rolling in this, which is they let that Senate bill, the Texas Senate bill that overturned Roe, They let it stand, right? They let it stand on the shadow docket. And what happened then was that all of a sudden, all of these other red states decided that they could make abortion illegal too, which is what's happened now in Oklahoma. And what I think you're going to see is you're going to see now, and now you have California making it so they're strengthening their abortion providers. They're having, I just interviewed the head of Planned Parenthood California. She's got patient navigators for abortion. They're paying for women to come to California and have an abortion. So here's a situation where you're going to have a state where abortion is criminalized, right? And women can go to jail, like what happened this weekend in Texas. And then you're going to have another state where they're paying for your travel. They're paying for your hotel. They're making it so that you can have an abortion legally. And you're going to have a situation where these states are in the same country. And I think that's going to create a lot of problems. And I don't even think we even see the kind of problems that it's going to create. But you're I I don't know how. And again, like I'm not saying that the country should break apart in any way, but I'm just saying you're going to this is going to get worse and worse and worse. And I don't know how you close Pandora's box now, because you're going to have states that are going to have a totally different set of laws. So Molly, I have to thank you very much for spending over an hour with us. This was one of my favorite conversations. You were here from the beginning. Now we're a year in. We're still going. We're growing. 
modeling a, a lot of what we do after the way you host your shows. Normally, I ask for last thoughts. I guess we are seeing a push to make abortion illegal, a push to prevent teachers from being able to talk about LGBTQ things and a push to burn books or throw books out more accurately. Are you hopeful that the Democrats can turn out the vote at some point and turn this tide in a way that is in favor of the cultural, the liberal cultural issues? Because it seems like the Republicans are are starting to win. I think there certainly are. And I think that it's really problematic. I would say I think they've overshot it. The book banning and the abortion stuff, I actually think they've overshot it. Most Americans are pro-choice. They may not be pro-choice at 20 weeks, but they are certainly pro-choice up until, you know, the second trimester. And most Americans don't want, they don't want books disappearing from the library. And I think that if Democrats can message this, this is a winning message. People don't want fascism. What's happened in Russia doesn't look good. It doesn't look good to anyone but Vladimir Putin. So I do think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and it's really, they've gotten really good at it. There are all these conservative news channels. Tucker Carlson has millions of people watching him every night. But these ideas are still very unpopular. And if Democrats can explain to voters what they're signing up for and a little bit of why, you know, why maybe they don't want to, I think ultimately that could save them in the midterms. That concludes our conversation for today. Again, huge thanks to Molly John Fast, to our audience for their questions, and most of all, to you for being here. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us, past episodes, and our upcoming live schedule, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Wednesday featuring Anna Kasparian, co-host of The Young Turks. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders. We hope to hear from you soon. Mm -hmm.